Welcome back to the only podcast ever to receive 100 points from Wine Spectator magazine and the podcast whose spicy notes and earthy tones vividly paint a pastoral tableau of rolling, semi-arid hills springing to life with the sound of music. Beethoven walks into a bar. I'm Mike Gordon, principal flute of the Kansas City Symphony. And I'm Stephanie Brimhall, the director of education and community engagement. And I don't know what you just said. Well, uh, <laughs> I don't know what I just said either, but uh, let's get on with it anyway. Uh, today we have our uh, first guest conductor of this season, Maestro Domingo Hendoyan, uh, who hails from Venezuela and is making his first visit to us here in Kansas City with a program of Mendelssohn, Brahms, and the ever-intoxicating Symphony Fantastique of Hector Berlioz. Uh, Domingo began his musical life as a violinist in Venezuela's legendary music education program, El Sistema. He then went on to become a member of fellow South American Daniel Barenboim's West Eastern Divan Orchestra in Seville, Spain, and has since enjoyed a flourishing career on the concert stage as well as in the opera pit. He currently serves as chief conductor of the Royal Liverpool Philharmonic and principal guest conductor of the Polish National Radio Symphony Orchestra, which I believe, is where he's joining us from today in Poland. So please welcome today's guest, Domingo Hindoyan. Hello. Thank you very much for the invitation, Stephanie and Michael. So exactly, I'm in Poland at the moment. <laughs> well, thanks so much for being here. And I'm, there are many things uh, we're so excited to hear from you about. But but I, I want to start at the beginning because... Um, We've actually talked many times on this podcast about El Sistema in one context or another. And and I actually had the opportunity as a young musician to travel to Caracas and see it in action personally. And it was one of the most inspiring experiences of my life, truly. And uh, I met people, you know, with whom I'm still in contact and have learned even more about. I mean, it's truly turned into a, a, a thread, actually, through my whole career Um that experience. So tell us about your time uh, in this program and how it shaped you and and why has it been so impactful and influential? Well, for me, I didn't notice anything. Being just a, sh a child, I just started the music the way it was in my country. Just going every day to the, to the conservatory, the music school, I didn't even know that that was the Sistema or something. For me, it just was normal life. Uh, just to sit down in an orchestra uh, when I was six with barely, you know, playing any note, any, you know, position shifting or something, nothing. And all of a sudden I have some Handel music in front of me or or some arrangements of Tchaikovsky Symphony, easy arrangement. And uh, I just grew up like that. At the beginning was uh, fun just to to sit down and some noise and try to play some music. Uh, waiting for the the break uh, to play some football in the <laughs> in the in the entrance of the of the of the school, and then back to to music and then the individual lesson and just put the finger here and the finger there and so on. But just was my normal life at home. My father himself is a violin player, and I have some some critical eyes at home when I just I go back. But I was a little bit lazy at the beginning, very early, five, six, seven, eight years old. I was not really too much, just for fun, uh, and that and that was my life. And without even noticing, later on. Uh, uh, things start working. Just you feel the passion, you feel the love, 
for music. So if you were there, you see how it works. All of a sudden, you memorize the pieces and you're playing symphonies by heart and you will come on, how can I do that? You know, and all type of conductors and uh, those very demanding, uh, those uh, that have no idea of anything and those who, who, who are really picky and very um, pedagogical. And you have all kinds and you grow up, you grow up and you just play, play, play until all of a sudden you start playing better. And there is this ambition coming from from inside your body, you know, like you want to play every day better. You want to be, I don't know, the concertmeister or you want to play that symphony or you want to change of orchestra to a better orchestra. You want to go to the Simon Bolivar Orchestra or you want to to travel to United States concerts and go on tour on Europe. So you, you start, you know, it's just having this ambition. I always make a little comparison to to what is the 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 football, the soccer uh, in United States in Brazil? Uh, I guess should be it's kind of the same in the classical music in Venezuela. Is you you really want to to become the best? You you want to play all these great pieces, and why not to just to be an international player, like an international footballer, you know? And and, and this passion comes alone. There is never uh, something boring or something like this lesson in the center of four walls and going and the scale and going up and down and intonation. There is always fun and, and some extra motivation. I think that's what's special about Sistema. Of course, all the social, big social aspect of it, that is uh, education for free. Everyone, everyone has access to it. You don't need any money for that. Mm -hmm. uh, not money for the instrument, not money to become part of the orchestra to get lessons. You, if you are really, really in uh, the private uh, uh, social uh, status, you will have help for the transportation, for the buses, for the for everything. And it's all about inclusion, and it's about uh, all being the same. Uh, when we are in the orchestra or in the music school or or any activity you have, um, and that is very special. All, all that together makes. And without, for, without forgetting the high, high demanding musical level, we really want to play music well. And that's it. That all, all together makes something quite special. I, I, I want to highlight that aspect of it, too, because mm -hmm. that, that was the most, one of the most incredible things that I remember when I was there. You know, we were, I went as a group of, of teenage flute players uh, from Boston. And and we were playing with uh, mostly with the ONF there. The I'm not going to bother to try to speak Spanish because it is criminal every time the language comes from my mouth. <laughs> Orquesta Nacional de Flautas, that, yeah, yeah, that, yeah, the the National Flute Orchestra, as I call it. And um, <laughs> and you know we sat there with these players, also you know same mostly same age as us, and then you know the mentors and the leaders were were of course older, but but you know we came in and. And we were in this school and everyone had a flute that looked like it had been through, you know, band 10 or 12 times over, you know, through the decades. And then they picked up these instruments and just started shredding incredible, incredible ability on these, on these instruments. And, you know, there was passion and, and such, you know, commitment and discipline to it and, and the, you know, the leaders, the teachers were incredibly demanding, but there was also such fun going on, you know, at the same time, it, it you know, there wasn't this um, sort of sense of pressure, or 
whatever. I mean, you know, it must feel something, you know, because it, what they're doing is, is difficult, but the, the level of all the musicians, I mean, the flute players mostly were who I interacted with, but everyone was incredible. Yes, absolutely. And, and, and uh, because there is, uh, there is uh, um, a high level, some of the teachers with, with the generations, the level improves and improves and improves, mm-hmm. uh, which is normal. And then we were lucky enough to have great flutists to come to Venezuela to teach, or some of the teachers uh, of the flutists w- would go to 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 United States or to Europe to get some master classes or lessons, or they will study for two three years and come back and will immediately transmit all the knowledge. And very interesting, especially with the flute and violin and and oboe, for instance, these soprano instruments. Uh, we have also a big tradition of Venezuelan folk music. And which is absolutely virtuoso. And you, you see these kids playing flute or violin and playing all these Venezuelan melodies and doing arrangements and improvisation. And you see how virtuoso they can be. It's unbelievable. And, and of course, the, the, the level is very high and the competition is high to be just the first flute of any of the orchestras. Uh, or, or on, and, and then you see, uh, especially uh, early, you know, children or youth orchestras, uh, a Beethoven symphony with uh, six or seven flutes at the same time was quite impressive. So that, that develops also quite of a good ear for the intonation. You are going to play and double all the voices, then you have to play in tune. You know, earlier you, you mentioned uh, that your dad was a, a violinist as well, which is actually something in common that you have with our music director, Michael Stern, who also has uh, a violin-playing father. And I wonder, um, I, I would assume that, that you kind of were led to the violin by your dad's profession as well, but but maybe not. And then what then took you from the violin to being a conductor? Uh, that's a very interesting question. Uh, of course, the, the fact that my father was a, a violin, uh, he's now retired uh, himself, uh, it's also always an extra uh, thing to have just instruments at home, violins at home, uh, recordings at home every day, videos, and this passion, a great collection of, of, of recordings, and I will go through them since very early stage in my life. But my father did not have only uh, violin uh, uh, books. Uh, he also has scores. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I used to, I remember, I used to, to go to recordings of many of the great violinists, uh, including Michael's father, uh, uh, and then go to, go to great concertos with the score. And already there, uh, I, was, I, I wanted to have a, a complete a view of the orchestra, not only of the violin alone. So I think from very early, I wanted to, to, to know more than just the violin line. Uh, then being an orchestra player, I, I was always curious about how this person will organize all these sounds, uh, especially with children orchestra, youth orchestra, is just a mess and everyone talking and so on. And then <laughs> how he will lead, how he will just go to that and, and organize it and rehearse and change the sound. And I was just part of it, but always uh, trying to put myself in the in the podium and imagine how I will solve it. But I play violin in orchestras like that for years, just kind of a conductor spy. 
and I will just take my scores with me and just double check. And, and then later on, I got more confidence and I will just approach the conductor. Oh, maestro, look, look what I discovered here. Just piano here, it's forte. Oh yeah, thank you. Some of them just didn't care and some other, okay, thank you very much. And I was always a kind of active in more to just than one voice. And, but I have this strong belief that I have to study violin very much to become a real good player as much as my talent could 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 give me and even more if i can if i could in order to become a conductor so i wait i i honestly i wait a long time i didn't i'm not a, a very young uh, conductor when i was 17 or 18 in venezuela conducting youth orchestras no i started actually i sta i started conducting in europe mm. myself later on i left venezuela and I went to Europe. Um, and then I switched. Uh, after four years, I switched. I went to, to conducting studies in Geneva Conservatory. But there was, I always uh, say, and an, a small anecdote, uh, I was totally in love with the Sibelius Concerto mm -hmm. by Christian Ferraz, conducted by Subin Meta. Mm -hmm. And uh, Ferraz, you know, the passion, the sound, my goodness, the legato, and so on. And I used to see that video, to watch that video so often, until one day I just stopped looking at Ferras, and I was just more interested in how good Subin Meta was conducting that concerto. I said, "Oh, there is something different. <laughs> there is something different now on my on my on my taste and what I want. I'm instead of enjoying the Sibelius concerto and Ferras sound, I'm just enjoying how well Subin Meta is conducting it. So there is something <laughs> weird." Then that was kind of the sign. I have to start conducting and start to study conducting. And I did it in Europe. I finished my, let's say, can just call it postgraduate studies uh, in Europe or in violin. And then smoothly I start conducting, but always playing violin aside mm -hmm. together. See, I, that must be the sign. Because every time I hear the Sibelius Violin Concerto, you know, there are a couple of things I would love to be able to play once in my life and I never will. And the Sibelius, not even the whole concerto. I love the whole concerto. I don't have to play the whole thing. Just once, the you know the octaves that. I mean, that just you know it gives you chills. It happens every you know every time, and I just want to be able to do that once. I never look at the conductor at that moment, either when I'm watching, listening to the concerto, or incidentally when I'm playing in the orchestra. I'm watching the violinist, and I'm just thinking, I want to do that. Well, you can. You have to sing the sixth and then play the other, the, the other one. There you, you go, to Mike. Make the overtone. Yes, yeah, see, no, <laughs> that's it. Go, I'm not that guy. <laughs> <laughs> so you say that you're you are are you still playing? I mean, how often do you do you practice? Do you play? Well, do you now less and less? Yeah. Now less and less because uh, I'm enjoying the fact I don't have to travel with the instrument. Mm -hmm. uh, traveling in airplanes with the instruments, except for the flute, Mike. But with violins and cellos, <laughs> could be a little bit, could be a little bit of, of, of annoying. And then I enjoy the fact that I don't, I don't. But recently, for instance, in Liverpool, um, I, I'm, I'm also very active with the, with the, with the education, education uh, projects. We have a great sistema. Uh, 
there called In Harmony, and we have a youth Philharmonic, and I play I play with them. I sat I sat in the in the in the in the tutti of the first violin, and I play with them uh, Coriolan Overture, uh, Beethoven, and I play also some English music. And at the end, I just stood up and, and conduct Firebird, and but I try to be part of it and, and play. And during COVID, I had a little comeback to the West Eastern Divan. Uh, I was on the phone with Mr. Barenboim, my maestro, how are you? How's COVID doing? I know, well, we're going back to, to touring and the West Eastern Japan is going to Salzburg and some and some concert in Bonn for the Beethoven anniversary. I said, maestro, I'm available. All my concerts are cancelled. I'm happy to go and play. Just come where you're going to be a few conductors there in the location. Just come. I got the violin back and then I went to play in Salzburg Festival in in, in Bonn, some uh, Beethoven symphonies and and even Boulez, I, I was one of the violin players of the Boulez Memorial Fix, oh, wow. is that you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, talk about this a little more, because I don't want to gloss over your, your time in the in the West East, Eastern Divan. This is such a, an interesting uh, ensemble and an interesting connection for you in particular. Um, one, because it's led, of course, by another South American, uh, Daniel Barenboim, but also because it has this incredible... Uh, uh, social aspect to it, as does as does El Sistema. So I think a lot of our listeners may not be aware of this orchestra. Tell us a little bit about it and your time there, and how that also kind of shaped your early your early life as a musician. Yes, absolutely. Well, first of all, the the most uh, very important to say how a Venezuelan takes part of this orchestra. Uh, I mean, I'm a totally Venezuelan, born in Caracas, and but my mother. Uh, she is. She was born in Aleppo, Syria, from an Armenian uh, father. So she's a Syrian-Armenian um, a lady. She's a lawyer. And one day I was in Lucerne uh, with some friends and I knew Mr. Barenboim was going to conduct Chicago Symphony in Lucerne, one of his last concerts uh, in 2005. They were on tour in Lucerne, uh, conducting Ola Ravel, Second Half, Bolero, Rhapsody, and so on. And I had my violin in my hands, well, I was a conducting student, and I went just there as a conductor, just to follow the rehearsal, you know, be, admire and learn if I could. Uh, well, that was just a little acoustic rehearsal on tour, so no much work, no more, not too much talking, so not really a part to being, being impressed by the sound or anything. I was just there. But I had a friend in Chicago Symphony who whom I met a few years ago, uh, before that, who said, come, Domingo, also South American, you are there, let me introduce you to, to Mr. Barenboim. I said, okay, well, really, I don't want to bother. No, no, come, come, doesn't matter. I was my violin because I just uh, sneak in the hall with the violin, you know, kind of, I'm a Chicago Symphony player, you know, so nobody will ask me anything. And I just, and then we were just in the concert hall listening to the rehearsal. And I was my violin, I said, hello, Mr. Barenboim, nice to meet you, huh? where are you from? In Spanish. Uh, I'm Venezuelan, and my mother is from Syria, and my father is Venezuelan. Ah, you know Mr. Abreu? Yes, I know him, of course, and I know him very well, and we're a little small chat. Uh, oh, well, what a moment. You, you have some Syrian background. Your mother, yes, of course. You speak Arabic. Not really. I understand a little bit, but I don't speak Arabic. But you know my project. Of course I know your project. Well, you can maybe join, because you have some 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 Syrian background. And I see you have a violin in your hands. You're a violin player. Of course I'm a violin player. But tell me something, Domingo. Do you really play violin or do you just a uh, charlatan? <laughs> you know, a, little, a, little, a little joke. A little joke that way. I said, Maestro, really, I'm not going to tell you. 
I, I cannot answer that question. I need to audition at some point. So if with pleasure I will come, I was, you know, very, oh my God, I am asking audition to Mr. Barenboim. And then I said, uh, whenever you want, I come to Berlin and I audition to, for you. Come on, not Berlin. Just take the violin out now. Play something. Wow. <laughs> Just in the dressing room. Then, then I took the violin and... This 2005. So I was just a conducting student, no work, no, just studying conducting. And I was still in shape with my violin. I used to practice a lot. So I just took and played the Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto until the cadenza. And himself, a little bit conducting, giving me some, some hints from the accompaniment. He did not play the piano accompaniment. He just was singing a little bit some, some voices. And I played the whole thing through. Oh, no, very good. We actually play, blah, 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 etc. You will join us if you want to. So the next day, two days later, I received an email invitation for next summer already. So, so happy. My goodness. And after I was trembling, I just played for him without really preparing. But that's the matter. Good. That was the one. And, and I, I, don't want to I don't want to interrupt your story, but just so everyone understands, you didn't just like play for 30 seconds. The The first movement of the Tchaikovsky up to the, up to the cadenza is like... 20 minutes of music that you just launched into yeah. unprepared. Yeah. I mean, you were prepared, uh, yeah, yeah, but exactly. unexpectedly. Yeah, yeah, I played like 12 minutes of music. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's it. And everything started that way. And that was in 2005. In 2006, I joined. And honestly, for me, it was a life-changing uh, uh, part of my life uh, for many, many reasons. Uh, the first one, it was the musical, the musical side of it. I have never in my life until then made music in such a high and demanding level. I just, he was just having a genius in front of you teaching every note because for him, it's just, he was giving everything. And he actually does with every orchestra, not important if it's a, a Chicago Symphony, Stadtkapelle Berlin or Berlin Philharmonic of Western Divan, he rehearsed every time the same way. And just, wow. Now, because before I had an education where I knew harmony, uh, rhythm, melody, and I knew how to analyze my scores, I have a violin player, I knew how to read everything. But then with, in, in this orchestra, there was a link. Uh, there was uh, how to put that together and link it with real life link it with philosophy, link it with, with physics, and how to, to take that to, to, to life and what is the meaning of all that for, for, for your own life, for society. For, and that is what the most, most important thing I learned in, in the West Eastern Divan. Of course, not to mention uh, during the breaks and the free time when you are touring with, with such a, a, a special a population of the, of the world that has been in conflict for so many years, for such a long time. And then you see and you learn uh, how music, when we are rehearsing, we are playing, we can just be the same. We can just be all together for the same goal. And then when you are a little bit outside, of course, you will respect the differences. Uh, uh, it's going to be very difficult to get a Palestinian uh, agree to an Israeli uh, someone who lives in, in, in Bethlehem or in Ramallah to be totally uh, uh, agree, agree totally with, with someone who lives in Tel Aviv. It's something that they, they were uh, just half an hour away one from each other, but they never met. It's impossible for them to meet. So for, for me, that was just totally shocking. 
totally shocking. And in my personal uh, uh, point of view, I have also some identity uh, moments where I was sharing with real Syrians in the, uh, I mean, not real, with Syrians from Syria, uh, because my, I grew up with Syrians or Armenians from Venezuela, mm -hmm. you know, the, the colony in Venezuela that speaks Spanish and so on and cool and kind of Venezuelan slang and sometimes they switch to Arabic. Uh, but now here is like, oh, hi, I'm from Damascus. I'm, I'm from Aleppo. Oh, wow. My mother too, but amazing. For me, that was something uh, really special. I have great friends since then great friends I spent in the orchestra uh, more than seven years and then I went on being assistant of Mr. Barenboim in Stadtkapelle Berlin, Stadtopper Berlin for three more years so was ten altogether that absolutely I cannot say otherwise that changed my life in all the aspects in musical life in all the aspects and also not only musical like like a human being. So I, I'm I'm curious now I mean looking ahead you know we've We've been through this incredibly disruptive time in all aspects of life uh, with the pandemic, which hopefully, hopefully we are starting to move past. And I have certainly said, and I think my colleagues have as well, that you know there are some things, a lot of things, I think that we we learned in all aspects of life, but music specifically, that I hope will will take forward. Um, so for you, you know, as as we're looking forward to this next phase of existence um, where hopefully we get back to normalcy but maybe a slightly more enlightened normalcy I mean how do you how do you envision that as far as what goes on in the concert hall because I think the thing that's so interesting about you know the West Eastern Divan about El Sistema about many other um, orchestras and programs that have been going on actually for a long time it's not a totally new idea is that you know the music is driven by a very real, social need. And I think, you know, here and in many other parts of the world, sometimes music um, is really driven by that. Sometimes it's entertainment. Sometimes we, you know, we go and we have our 14 concert subscription series and, you know, it exists because it always had. And it just, it feels like sometimes this, um, this process that's slightly more detached sometimes from, from the immediacy of the world. So how, how do you, see, that's a long question to say, how, how do you see the concert experience um, hopefully becoming more, more integrated what, with what is going on in the world right now and how it, how it might change uh, as we come out of this ridiculous period of time that we've been in? Absolutely, Mike. The, the COVID times uh, were very, very important for the music and culture in general. Uh, music and culture sometimes is considered uh, something um, elite, something we really don't need. Entertainment. Of course, first of all, is the health. Then there is the economy. And then, you know, science, sports, and so on. And then culture, music is all somewhere there. But the lack of it during COVID kind of made us understand uh, that we we were giving it for granted, and I had the I had great feedback from people uh, to expressing how much they missed it, how much they missed it, and and how much they need that contact with the, with the, with the with the live sound, the, how much they need 
to go and discover composers, how much they need to to go and listen again and a Brahms symphony, a Beethoven symphony, a Berlioz symphony, it doesn't matter, it's, it comes once every season or once every two seasons. They need it, they need interpret, new interpretations, they need, uh, you know, mistakes from any anybody, you know, live music, this. And how, how I see it now is I have the feeling, at least where, where I'm now traveling and conducting, is that we appreciate it a little bit differently. We, we really say, wow, we're lucky and to do this job. And what is this job? You know, doesn't matter we have great electric cars, we go to the moon, we have the iPhones and we have all the, the, the possibility to listen to every, anything we want and YouTube and so on. At the end, we need, the human being needs a moment of thought and deep reflection, of spirituality, of connection with something else, connection with, with himself, first of all, uh, and connection with, with that, that something above ourselves, above the real life. And, and I think attending a live concert gives a little bit of it. Mm -hmm. And performing live for us also is quite special. You, the audience depends on the mood of the day. If you're a dentist, you have some problems during the day, then you go to, to listen to Berlioz Fantastique, and then you go to the fourth moment, then it's going to be kind of, oh my goodness, I almost killed that guy with that. You know, but you, 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 you have some emotions and you live through it and you rebuild yourself. It's like sleeping. You, you regenerate the, the cells. You, you, you live, you take some vitamins. And I think uh, music is, today after COVID is taking, is being taken more serious. Mm -hmm. How important it's for society and should be, should be at least, at least in Europe. And it's also our responsibility as musicians to make people understand how important it is. And if we don't have it, uh, there will be something missing. I will have my, my supercar, my Tesla or my something and modern and I can have uh, iTunes uh, uh, and podcasts and everything. But I'll need your sound, Mike. I'll need the live flute. I need the cello. I need the violin. And this, that one is the one that goes directly to the soul. And we can experience it only live. You know, I, you saying that is so well-timed for a personal experience I just had. Uh, we recently did... Um, a concert of Wijed Strauss's Alpine Symphony and um, a piece by Iman Habibi that was that I loved. And Mike, you and I haven't talked about it yet, but Every Tree Speaks, Iman Habibi, I, I loved it so much. And then we also did a percussion concerto um, by Adam Schoenberg with our principal percussionist, Josh Jones. And if you'll indulge me for a moment, a personal experience that I had, I was concerned that I wasn't going to be able to make it to any of the concerts because I had a very busy weekend with some work things, but some family things. And I wasn't going to be able to make it to the concert. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go to the dress rehearsal. I'm going to sit, I'm going to listen to it. And then that'll fulfill what I need. You know, I want to hear everything. And I heard the concerto and immediately I was like, I have to, I have to make it to a show this weekend because I have to experience this with other people. I I need to be around other people when they experience the way that Josh is playing this concerto. I want to see their reactions. I want to feed off their emotions. And um, so I, I 
you know, rework some stuff. And I ended up going to the Saturday night concert. And it was, I mean, just being in the room with all of the just palpable energy that you could feel from the soloist, from the orchestra, but just being amongst those people, it was such an incredible experience and an experience I knew that I couldn't get sitting in a dress rehearsal with, you know, eight other people in the audience while the orchestra rehearsed. And I think that you're absolutely right. It is, uh, it's something that a human experience and a human emotion, we need to experience these types of events and music together as a group that's part of the experience well enough of being sappy so let's move on to a segment that we have grown to really love here on beethoven walks into a bar uh this is our top five it's a top five it's a top five it's the top five. 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 Beethoven walks into a bar. So if you've ever listened before, you've probably realized that we've given you a food craving at some point during during your listening. And today we are representing the great continent of South America right with maestro hindoyan and so it seems only fitting that after this chit chat about music we have our top five which is all our five favorite south american foods mike and i love to talk about food domingo so you're a, um and we're both we're both lovers of barbecue and we're both lovers of well food Let's just yeah. let's just be all foods. clear. It's just all foods. <laughs> all the foods. So <laughs> we thought it would be fun to talk about our top five South American foods. And I don't know, should we, Domingo? Can we start with you today? Do you I have think a, so. a list today of your? It doesn't have to be in you know ranked one to five or five to one, but just your top five favorite South American foods. I do have absolutely. I'm a I'm very foodie myself. <laughs> I, I love. Uh, uh, restaurants and I profit from traveling, you know, so much traveling and I try to, 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 to discover all the restaurants all around the world. And South American food, oh my goodness. First of all, uh, of course, after so many years traveling and being away of my, of my home, uh, I connect immediately Venezuelan food with my country and all these this flavors and, and, and perfumes. So absolutely, uh, I will start with the Venezuelan uh, food. Perfect. Uh, there is one called pabellon. Pabellon with its shredded beef, black beans, white rice, and 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 platan, uh -huh. uh, or I, I don't know how you call it, banana or something. Plantains, plantains yeah. Platans, platans, exactly. Uh, that one is absolutely my number one. Uh, uh, that's typical of Venezuelan. Then we have the famous arepas mm -hmm. that you have a little bit everywhere. You can find them in sure in any street of in Kansas City too. Mm -hmm. Uh, arepas that has been has been exported uh, very much the last ten years. Uh, then I have uh, I go now to South America a little bit. A ceviche, mm -hmm. and I'm not going to go. Uh, our, our your associate conductor is not here with us today, but I'm not going to go with the origins. If it's Chilean or if it's Peruvian, I would just say ceviche in general. Mm -hmm. <laughs> then uh, the. Um, the chupe is a fantastic uh, uh, South American soup with origins in 
in in Peru, but there are different chupes all around. There is one also. There's one Venezuelan chupe, and there is a Chilean chupe, and the 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 uh, Peruvian one, and four. Now, oh, I have so many. <laughs> uh, let me take about some 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 sweets. Some sweets. Uh, the Argentinian uh, panqueca with dulce de leche. Panqueca Ooh. is the is the is the uh, crepe, not crepe. It would be uh, uh, yeah, pancakes. Yeah. Pancakes with dulce de leche. Absolutely, yeah. just fantastic. Uh, as of course, after after there is a big, big, big Mexican big list of Mexican food and right. and that I love so much, but it's so big. Well, I'm starving, and th- with the time difference here, it's time for breakfast for me and Mike. But maybe, <laughs> maybe you'll you'll be able to fulfill some of these cravings here where you are. <laughs> well, Mike, um, what about you? What are your top five South American foods? Oh wow! Okay, well, uh, so uh, so I mentioned earlier I I have been to Venezuela, and at that time arepas uh, were not so easily available in the United States. Now it is true you can I know where to get an arepa. In uh, in Kansas City, but at the time I'd never had one. Um, but they they ticked all the boxes, you know. It had the I don't know exactly how to describe the bread. It's somewhere between a English muffin and a pancake, I'd say. But they make it into a pocket and fill it with uh, with meat and cheese. It's all the good things. So uh, where and corn and corn, yes, and, and gluten free and gluten. Oh yeah, right, because the dough the dough is made of corn, right? Not not flour. Yeah, yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Terrific. So, and then the other the other piece of low hanging fruit because I I can never turn away an empanada, but you know empanadas again are are very available pretty much anywhere in the U.S. now. Again, not not so much when I was a kid. But okay, now we're going to go slightly further off the beaten path. Not that far at first, but when I lived in Miami, there was this little divey Argentinian steakhouse right near where I lived. And you go in there, and it was like you stepped into Argentina. They always had football on TV, and uh, they had they had skirt steak with chimichurri, and they had things like blood sausage and the, the rice, and it was fantastic. So, so skirt steak with chimichurri—that's got to be one, you know, cooked on the paria grill—is that what you call it? The the special grill with the little sort of V-shaped bars. Uh, okay, then then we get a little more interesting. So so um, I discovered this Brazilian fish uh, stew, fish soup called uh, moqueca. I think I'm pronouncing mm. that right. It's it's spelled M O Q U E C A. And I discovered it because the long story short is is I learned how to make this Portuguese hot sauce called peri peri, mm-hmm. which is popular in Australia where my wife is from. It's a really global story. And I wanted something else that I could put in peri-peri, and I started researching, and I found this moqueca recipe. So I started making it. It's almost, it's coconut milk and seafood stock-based. It's almost like a curry in a way, but it's incredible. So that's one, Brazilian. And and finally, I have a friend who is Peruvian, who once uh, shared with me this sauce called uh, Juancaina, which is a, it's sort of like Peru's version of nacho cheese, if I can really, <laughs> but it's much more elevated. It's much more elevated than nacho cheese, but it's like a cheese sauce with spices and, and chilies. And you, uh, you serve it on uh, like boiled potatoes. It's, uh, it's fantastic. So those are, those are my five South American foods. Sounds, well, let's see. My stomach is officially growling, so... <laughs> <laughs> 
All right. Well, mine. Um, I actually have a few sauces on my um on my list too. I I love to cook Latin American food. That's just where my kind of flavor preferences lie. My kids love to eat Latin American food, but um, chimichurri is on my list. I love to put it on steak. It's um, yeah, it's delicious. I also recently, so I got a Peruvian cookbook that I've been kind of toying with, and there's this. I think it's pronounced aji verde, which is a just a Peruvian green sauce, and it's really bright. And there's tons of cilantro. And there's a creaminess with either sour cream or mayonnaise and a, the, a ton of jalapenos. And it's just, it's delicious. And I, we put it on everything in my house. We put it on eggs. We put it on potatoes. We put it on chicken. We put it on everything. Um, and we very often have a jar of it in the, in the fridge. Um, the Texan in me. So I, Domingo, I am from Texas where we like, we like our meats. Um, and then, you know, I moved here to, to Kansas City where we also like our meats. So the Brazilian barbecue, um, I can't, I can't ever pass up just, you know, going to a, a restaurant and just having unlimited shaved meats just tableside is, is something I, uh, I can't pass up. Uh, ceviche for me absolutely is, is also on my list. And then um, from this Peruvian book that I've, I've been making, Lomo Saltado, which uh, is kind of like a stir fry. It's like a, um, a Peruvian stir fry that's got meat and vegetables. But it, this, it, I kind of compare it to like Peruvian fajitas. They're, slight, they're seasoned differently. I know there's like soy and, and stuff in there, and it's just really good. And you guys, I, we have to stop talking about it because... My mouth is literally watering and I can't talk anymore. Well, we're going to have to wash all this food down with something. So I think there's something we should probably ask Domingo before we let him go. <laughs> Domingo, there is a question we ask all of our guests here on our podcast. This is how we finish our podcast. Um, so two questions, actually. First one is, what is your beverage of choice? If you, um, you, know, if you had to sit down and uh, have a drink, maybe it can be coffee, it can be you know, morning time, it can be uh, post-concert beverage, it can be, you know, dinner time, any, any time, uh, favorite beverage that you have. But maybe the other part of the question might lead you to it. So uh, if you were, let's say, enjoying this beverage, wherever you are, a cafe, a bar, um, and Beethoven walked in and sat next to you, what would you want to ask Beethoven? Oh, that's a beautiful question. And... Um I might, I would rather take a good whiskey with Beethoven mm. uh, rather than a coffee. Rather than a coffee, uh, I probably, probably would be more relaxed uh, <laughs> and to have a chat. I, I'm not so sure. Uh, my, first, my first reaction to that question would be, I would not ask anything. I would just enjoy how he talks. And listen to him to, to say anything and try to pick up and learn as much as I could. And the, the, the other question would be what I would not ask him. Because if he's really a composer of that level in front of me, I would just start asking questions of doubts I'd have always in his own pieces. Or from where did he get inspiration for, for Beethoven Ninth? Or uh, what... What does he think about uh, uh, what's the composers today, or <laughs> or what does he think about Fantastic Berlioz, which is 
which is written inspired on 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 probably the contrary of what he did with the with the with the, with the Beethoven Ninth. So many, it's, it's such a rich. That's why I think my first reaction is just try to provoke a conversation and let him talk, and from from then from then just to see where the conversation leads. Uh, normally, this kind of genius at that level, they don't like to teach. And so questions sometimes bother them. So the best is just to provoke uh, a subject and and let them let them let them go around and enjoy the the, the conversation. Absolutely. Well, Domingo, I want to thank you so much uh, for taking uh, this this time to have a chat with us today. I'm really, really uh, looking forward to the weekend uh, of concerts ahead, and uh, it's going to be an incredible program. We're doing the Brahm Schicksus lead. We have uh, music of Mendelssohn as well. Uh, we're, I noticed now we're kind of working around Beethoven. We have Mendelssohn, we have Brahms, uh, <laughs> and of course uh, Berlioz's uh, Symphony Fantastique. So it's it's kind of like surrounding surrounding Beethoven. Maybe maybe that was the theme. I don't know. Probably not. It's probably a much more thoughtful theme going on. But uh, uh, we'll be there with uh, Maestro Hindoya and the Kansas City Symphony Chorus, of course. Uh, and remember to rate review and subscribe this podcast uh, so it always magically appears on all of your devices every time we make a new one. Well, Domingo, thank you for joining us all the way from Poland. We can't wait to welcome you to Kansas City and I can't wait for this wonderful program. Thanks for being here. Thank you very much, Stephanie and Mike. And and I'm so much looking forward to debuting Kansas City. I already bought my flight. Everything is there. So I'm going to be there very soon. Thank you very much. Well, Mike, speaking of magic, on the next episode of Beethoven Walks Into a Bar, we welcome Doug and Maggie from Magic Circle Mime Company. Magic Circle Mimes are regarded as one of today's premier family attractions, and the symphony welcomes them to Hellsberg Hall on November the 6th for our very first family concert of the season. Doug and Maggie are going to chat with us about their creative programming. Both have backgrounds in theater and in instrumental music and i can't wait to chat with them about their upcoming program the listener with us next time on beethoven walks into a bar